everybody. Happy Monday. It is the Fan Drive Time Sports Center 590. The Fan, I'm Ben Ennis. It is getting fun around these parts. Blue Jays welcomed in Shohei Otani and an Angels team that wasn't punting on the season. In fact, adding. And they took two out of three. Could have been a three-game sweep if uh, Matt Chapman remembered what to do in the base pass in the sixth inning. Yada, yada, yada. Anyways, two out of three is more than fine. Packed houses for all three games against the Angels. And then, lo and behold, here we are, 27 hours, less than 27 hours away from the Major League Baseball trade deadline. Blue Jays swinging a massive deal for perhaps the most impactful reliever on the market. He's a rental, but he throws 103. Jordan Hicks, Cardinals closer, is now a Blue Jays reliever. And for the time being, I guess the Blue Jays closer? with Jordan Romano on the IL, and they start a four-game series against the division-leading Baltimore Orioles, who are five and a half games up on the Jays. But yeah, a lot can happen here this week. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. Chris Bassett versus Kyle Gibson in the first game of this series. And the last time Bassett saw the Orioles, he wasn't very good. Gave up eight earned runs on 11 hits over just three innings. So aiming to be better than that today. I uh, don't know if Hicks is in the city or not, if he will be available for tonight's game. Perhaps our next guest can uh, shed some light on that. It's Ben Nicholson-Smith, Sportsnet and the At The Letters podcast. Hello, Ben. Hey, Ben. How's it going today? It's going good. This is a, an exciting time in the city of Toronto. Listen, like 2015 is, is I think, the be-all, end-all, right, as far as like in-season trade deadlines. But... Man, Jordan Hicks, I wasn't expecting that, were you? Well, I, I was expecting them to add relief. So um, to that extent, it's not really a huge surprise to me. Um, Hicks is one of the relievers who is out there, and he's a good one. So I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't find it to be particularly um, shocking by any stretch. Um, but at the same time, it, it is a step toward um, uh, pushing in for the 2023 season. And we haven't always seen the Blue Jays front office push in for rentals. I mean, a lot of their acquisitions in the last five years or so have been for guys who have additional years of control, whether that's a Whit Merrifield or a Ross Stripling. Um, you know, you can go back all the way to Francisco Liriano and Ross Atkins, when he has made moves, has prioritized guys who can help beyond the current season. And that makes sense, but there is also a time and a place to push in for rentals. And the Blue Jays determined that they wanted to do that for Jordan Hicks, who immediately makes this bullpen better. Okay, so I get it, and nothing surprises you. You're you're just you're aware of all the possibilities. Yeah, no, to me that was the surprising part. Is that we're used to hearing at Ross Atkins media availability, which will happen tomorrow after six o'clock after the deadline is passed, and talking about all the many years of control the Blue Jays acquired via trade, and there's none uh, attached to Jordan Hicks, and and he's a reliever who's been really good outside of April, but you never know with relievers, and he walks a ton. Um, to me, yeah, that's the surprising part, Ben. And they gave away a couple of guys who were having nice little seasons in Double A, who were highly regarded uh, prospects, not at the the top of the Blue Jays prospect pool. And Klaffenstein is you know he's repeating Double A, so not exactly great there. But like, what have we talked about a lot this season as well is the lack of minor league optionable starting depth. Those guys could have been that next year, and they're not. I mean, does that signal something? that they did give up years of control for a guy with no years of control. Do you think that that informs what could be coming next for this Blue Jays team? I think it definitely tells us something about what the front office considers the needs of this team to be and how uh, much upside remains for this, for this Blue Jays team. And what's been a season that 
to, to this point has at times been pretty frustrating for the Blue Jays and they haven't played to their full potential. They've been trailing in the division the entire season and trailing often in the wild card as well. So, you know, by that measure, it's it's been a bit of a frustrating year for them, but they're still capable of doing some really good things. And I think the Hicks deal reflects a, a desire to make sure that 2023 uh, is as good as it possibly can be and extends as, as far into October as possible. And I think there's a time and a place for acquiring years of control and for, for getting as much, you know, war into your, into your organization as possible. And I think for the St. Louis Cardinals, where they are, this is a really good trade for them. I mean, they're getting two young arms who might end up being back-end starters in the major league, and there's immense value in that. And so good for the Cardinals. They weren't going to win anything this year anyways. But for the Blue Jays, they actually could win something this year. And so they needed to find guys who can just create more depth and get outs against the best hitters in the world late in games. And Jordan Hicks is definitely capable of that. So it's a, it's an endorsement of the current roster. I think the players um, that I spoke to yesterday were definitely pleased to learn that Jordan Hicks was joining um, this, this ball club and there's gotta be more to come. I mean, this can't be the only move that the blue Jays make. And I don't expect that it will be. Could we see a Wally Pip situation here? Just like just uh, on, on, you know, the results alone this season, do you think that Jordan Hicks is better than Jordan Romano? And, and if he gets these opportunities and some pretty high-stakes games against divisional opponents the Blue Jays haven't had success against, like, is there a possibility we're looking at a new full-time Blue Jays closer? I really wouldn't take that leap right now. Um, and I, I think at the same time, um, when Hicks arrives here, and I'm not sure if he is here yet, um, but uh, but he seems excited based on his social media posts. I'm sure he'll be here um, as soon as possible within the next couple of days. And when he does arrive, I think he would be a logical candidate to close with Jordan Romano on the injured list for sure. You know, Jordan Romano has been one of the best closers in baseball, and he has been a better closer than Jordan Hicks in the course of the last couple of years. So to me, you know, you have an all-star closer, and you're not going to just, um, you know, displace him from that role unless his performance suffers. And we have no reason to believe that Jordan Romano is anything but an all-star closer. So to me, moving forward, that closing job is his. But there are tons of times in the regular season where, you know, he might have pitched two days in a row and you want someone else or someone, uh, you know, isn't available for whatever reason. Maybe you have uh, an extra innings game and you need to go to Hicks. And in the playoffs, the same things can happen. And it can certainly be more of an all-hands-on-deck where um, it's really just about getting out. And it's not about individual stats in the least. So I think I think Romano's the closer. I, I don't think that changes. I, I don't think that's in question at all. But having another closer-caliber arm is always a good thing for any team this time of year. Yeah, they were obviously looking at relief arms either way. I wonder if the, the Romano IL stint uh, expedited things, especially with this series and, and the impact and, and still having dreams of the division title. Do you think that expedited the process or, or maybe like forced Blue Jays' hand? Maybe, you know, they had to up the prospect ante to, to, to get this deal done before today's game, assuming, again, of course, Hicks is available. Do you think the Romano IL stint changed things for the Blue Jays? I think to some small extent, it probably nudged things forward. And the Blue Jays paid a high price. There's no question. The executives that I talked to with different teams um, said that this is a really good return for the Cardinals. And the Blue Jays definitely had to pay up at a time that there aren't a lot of sellers. So 
you know, again, the Cardinals did well with this trade and the Cardinals are the one team in this that they can, they can look themselves in the mirror and say, we definitely got um, the, the deal that we wanted for the blue Jays. You know, they're not sure how this is all going to unfold, um, but they're making a gamble. They're taking a calculated risk. And, you know, I think it, it makes a lot of sense, but as for the health aspect of this, you know, it's not only Jordan Romano. And that's the interesting thing here, because you look at, Eric Swanson, you look at Jimmy Garcia and Tim Meza, and those three guys have each pitched in 49 games, which is tied for uh, fourth in Major League Baseball in appearances. Only three pitchers have appeared in more games than that trio. So it is a group that has been used really heavily. And I had a scout say the other day that he thinks Swanson needs a break like yeah. now. So, you know, that's, that's not just, you know, people in our world saying that, but those are, that's professionals in the baseball industry are looking at this team and saying that there are other guys beyond Jordan Romano who need a break as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, and that was pretty clear in, in the, the middle game of that Dodgers series as well. Uh, yeah. Would have liked to not have to use him there, but man, they, they did nothing but play in close games across those, those six games uh, in Seattle and Los Angeles. So this is step one. Uh, you mentioned that they, they probably need to add a bat and, and your story on sportsnet.ca today indicated that, there's not a lot available. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like talking myself into Tommy Pham. Where where are you on on the guys the Blue Jays are targeting offensively? I, I wish I could tell you who they're targeting offensively. I, I really do. You know, I can speculate and point to names like Pham, who I think makes a lot of sense. Mark Canna makes some sense. You know, you could certainly look to Oakland um, with guys like Ramon Laureano and Brent Rooker. But I don't know exactly who it is that they've been zoning in on. I, I do know they want a right-handed bat. That could be a second baseman, could be an outfielder, could be more of a DH type like Pham, who's not really regarded as a, as a real good defender at this point in his career. So, you know, there are different ways that they could go about it, but they are actively looking for a bat. They want to add a bat. I think they will be able to add one. Um, I'd be surprised if they don't add a bat by, by you know, 6 p.m. tomorrow um, because it's a, it's a clear need for this team. But I, I don't know who it's going to be, and this might be a time where, you know, the Hicks, like to me, the Hicks won – it's a little different, but at the same time, it was like pretty obvious that he was going to be available. And mm-hmm. I think with the with the bat, maybe you have to get a bit more creative. Like maybe they do have to surprise us with the bat. Maybe they have to go off the grid a little bit and find someone who's you know outside of that paint by numbers. Not not that there's anything wrong with paint by numbers, or, and the Hicks deal makes sense. But you know, just being a bit more creative could make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I I I mentioned Tommy Pham, and yeah, you're right. You, you don't want him spending a bunch of time even in a corner outfield spot, but uh, he's he's having a great season. He's 35. He's a pending free agent. I don't know. What about going back to the Cardinals and and talking to, talking about Tyler O'Neill, who's not a pure rental. He has one more year of of team control beyond this one. He's yeah, he's been he's been injured a lot throughout the the course of, of his career and not having the best season, but he has uh, pretty good splits against left-handed pitching. How, how would you feel about Tyler O'Neill and what's his value at this point in, in his career with only, t- uh, you know, the rest of this season and one more year of, of team control for the Cardinals? Yeah. The value has fallen for sure. I like that idea. I think that makes some sense. Like to me, you know, as much as we can overcomplicate these things at times, but yeah. it's not rocket science. Just get a 
get another player, get a good bat, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it's really not though, right? Like <laughs> no. you know, get a good, get a good reliever, get a hitter. Okay. Move along. Let's see what happens. Right. <laughs> it's not rocket science. Um, well, no. And to, to that point though, right? Like the fit is, is weird because Whit Merrifield's now the leadoff hitter for this team. And I think, and deservedly so. And he, he looked the part over the weekend too, right? Uh, and it doesn't mean that George Springer won't be back there uh, at some point uh, this season, but right now he makes sense. Yeah. Hitting fifth. And, but also he's not coming out of the lineup. The only place that you could really see some maneuvering is yeah. Left field center field like that, that timeshare that maybe is now existing between Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermeyer. Um, maybe it is a, a corner outfield. That's I'm, I'm kind of focused on, on outfielders here, despite the fact that boy, you know, uh, the, the Blue Jays defense at second base has been, you know, an underrated or under uh, reported story this season that they're one of the worst teams in baseball at turning ground balls on the right side of the infield into outs. Like where, if, if you had your druthers positionally, where would the Blue Jays be shopping? I mean, well, when you said O'Neill, I was going to say that they should start with Tommy Edmond because, you know, I, I do think that adding um, someone who can move around a little bit, Edmonds, a switch hitter, play some second base, play some outfield. I mean, that would be really nice. Um, and ultimately, with the position player move, you know, you're upgrading over Luplo or Espinal or both. You know, you're not upgrading over Merrifield. So you're not really going to displace or replace one of your starting position players. You don't need to. Um, I think this time of year, it's really for a team like the Blue Jays, as much as we talk about the trade deadline and rightfully so, the improvements that the Blue Jays are going to make, a lot of them are going to have to still come internally. They still need more from Dalton Varsho. They still need a lot more from George Springer um, and from Vladdy even um, and from Alec Manoa. So that remains a, a, a source of potential improvement for this roster as they move ahead. I, I do think though, this, you know, it's kind of adjacent to the to the pitching conversation where you're not upgrading over Jordan Romano, you're upgrading over Mitch White, and yeah. then you DFA Mitch White, and then boom, oh my goodness, that is a <laughs> big upgrade, right? To go yes. from Mitch White to Jordan Hicks. So to me, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, Jordan Luplo's on the roster now. How can you upgrade over Jordan Luplo? And then the pieces fit. It's two months. The pieces are going to fit. I understand, like, you know, some of those fits are more awkward than others if you're talking about an established position player who's used to playing every day. But to me. Two months, you can make the pieces fit. Uh, I, I mentioned Varsho and yeah, you know, had a, a couple of was it a couple of doubles yesterday against lefties as well. But obviously, not the offensive season he would have liked to have had to this point, and not the offensive season the Blue Jays were expecting him to have this season because he was about a league average offensive player last year. He's been well below that this year. The defense is great, like all the other stuff outside of you know swinging the bat, real good. Um, he's only started three of the, the Blue Jays' last five games. And I mentioned kind of a timeshare thing. Like, do you think, uh, and, and this is without a, an additional bat um, to, to use in, in the outfield, do you think, like, his, his playing time is going to be a little bit more sparse here uh, in, unless the Blue Jays see some offensive improvement? I think so. I, I don't think they're ever going to frame it that way. But, you know, the way it goes as as you know very well, Ben, you know, is if someone's not hitting, they're just not going to play as often. And, you know, Dalton Varsho does so many. I, I still think long-term he's going to be a good player for this team. He does so many things well, but he's really not hitting. It's been a really rough offensive season. And so if they have better options out there, um, then I think that we're going to see those, those players mixed in. And that's going to be something that Varsho has to understand. And I, I don't think that, 
you know, at this point, he's had whatever it is, 350 plate appearances. He's had a, a fair run, you know, to earn every single day at bats. And if that shifts to a bit more like four times a week and coming off the bench another couple times, I think that's totally fine. I think that's, that's justified. But, you know, chances are, too, that someone else will get hurt on this roster because let's not forget this is a group that has a lot of older players between Kiermaier, Springer, Belt, and Merrifield and others so who are in the 30-plus category. And so there's going to be at-bats. If someone's healthy, they're going to be at-bats, and that's part of the reason the Blue Jays need to continue to add a bat here is, is, you know, they've been really good with health, and that's awesome, and hopefully that continues, but you need to be prepared for a contingency, and they need to add as much depth as they can. So they, they still have to add one more bat, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, before I let you go, so this was – Listen, if, if barring the the injury to Ricky Tiedemann, he he might have been well on his way to arriving here at the major leagues, if not now as a September call up. Uh, he he suffered the injury, and now it's I don't know a little murkier at the at the very least. He's he's got a, a couple of rehab assignments under his belt uh, in in Dunedin, and he, he's uh, by all accounts look looks real good. And I don't know if he's got one more before he he reemerges in New Hampshire. Is there? We we talked about the possibility of of the major leagues for him this year, and and I I discounted the possibility after the injury. I mean, if he's back in in Double A in a, in a couple of weeks, can can we for sure write him off as a, a major league option this year? I would be really surprised, just because he's still essentially rehabbing his way back, and I, I, it, to me, it looks more like a lost season for him. Mm. Um, you know. Never say never if you have a guy throwing 98. Like, you never know what kind of injuries pop up too, right? And so, you know, there could be scenarios where they kind of push him. Um, I don't think that's the way they want to operate. You look historically at the way they develop players, and it's been, you know, more looking at the player and how can the player get the most out of this development opportunity as opposed to trying to meet needs at the major league level and reverse engineer it that way. So, you know, I'd be really surprised. Um, You know, Barger, I could see. Like, I wouldn't be that surprised if Barger's in the majors this year um, or even this month. Or No, sorry, not this month. This month ends in, like, hours. But this, this <laughs> uh, you know, in the course of this season, I could see uh, Addison Barger um, making it to the majors. But I, I can't really see Tiedem. And I, 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 I'd be surprised. I'll put it that way. Yeah, uh, it seems like an aggressive timeline, considering the injury that, yeah, uh, let's have him have a healthy offseason and uh, revisit it in 2024. Ben, uh, busy time for you. Uh, enjoyed it very much and uh, and look forward to, to refreshing your Twitter feed in the next 26 and a half hours. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, have a good one, Ben. All right, you too. There's Ben Nicholson-Smith, uh, Sportsnet, and the At The Letters podcast. Blue Jays getting set for game one of four against the Baltimore Orioles, an Orioles team in which they've won only one of six games. A couple of those were in extra innings and a couple others were two-run games, but they lost a lot of them, five of the six. Hey, it's better than... Six of the six, like they have against the Boston Red Sox. Remember that one that they won? That was sweet. They had a chance even to win the series last time they faced the Orioles in Baltimore after dropping the opener. Again, the Chris Bassett start in which he gave up eight earned runs over just three innings. But yeah, they lost that one. And they have a chance to cut this division lead to just four and a half games. And they've also sent... A shot across the bow of the division as far as indicating to those other teams that they're serious. This is a team that's played pretty well since the beginning of May, it must be said, despite the fact that, you know, there's times where it doesn't feel like it. They've been one of the best teams in the American League 
since early May. And after the Rays couldn't maintain their like 130 win pace, it's it's the Blue Jays with realistic divisional hopes and with the entire starting rotation outside of Hunjin Ryu who's a pending free agent at the conclusion of, of this season, who, by the way, is going to make his season debut tomorrow in game two of the series. Blue Jays have five starters under team control for next year. Kevin Gossman, Chris Bassett, Yusei Kikuchi, Jose Barrios, Alec Manoa. It's a huge advantage because you can talk all you want, and I have, and earlier in the season when, when Alec Manoa was not unavailable, but like he didn't want him pitching in Major League Baseball games, I thought, wow, this is a real misstep for this team to not have a ready-made option in Buffalo, that, like that there's nobody there, not a single person that you can even squint and think that's, that's somebody who can slot themselves into the Major League rotation. Yeah, Blue Jays gave up a couple of guys that could be that next year. Sam Reverse, Adam Kloffenstein, those guys are having nice little seasons in New Hampshire with the Fisher Cats this season. And they had various degrees of pedigree going into this year. But so what? Like the the most optimistic projection on both of those guys are, you know, we talk about replacement level players when we talk about war, replacement level starters, which at times you need over the course of 162. What those guys aren't, though, are difference makers when it comes to the postseason. You don't want those guys anywhere. Listen. I guess clip this as if you're a member of Sam Reverse's family and, and, and you, you want to send it to Old Takes Exposed when he's World Series MVP in a couple of years. I don't think you want either of those guys over the course of their careers to be anywhere near a postseason game. You know who you do want? The guy who throws 103. And you can sit on your laurels and say, getting into the postseason is good enough. And you can say, hey, once you get there, because this game is a large sample size sport, that it's more of a freak show when you get to the playoffs. And why even bother? Because it's just, it's, it's all luck when you get there anyways, like it appears the Orioles are going to do. Or you can say, nah, you know what wins in the playoffs? Strikeouts, shortening the game, having elite level starting pitching at the top of your rotation and guys that can come in in the sixth inning and mow people down, which Jordan Hicks can and has outside of April. If he's in the game today, he's going to throw the hardest pitch in the history of the Toronto Blue Jays franchise. That's a fact. Blue Jays have never had a, a pitcher throw a, a ball 102 miles an hour without rounding up. Jordan Hicks has thrown like 100 this season. And it's, it's, it's not always clean and pristine and perfect because his walk rate is yeah it's elevated walks over five per nine but you know what else he does he strikes out over 30 percent of of batters and part of the reason why you can imagine an orioles team without a superior starting staff is doing damages the postseason is because of the back of the back end of their bullpen and nobody's felix bautista who by the way like i know you know who he is the orioles closer and he's been good but like you realize how good his strikeout rate is over 50%, which means that, like, over half of the, the guys that step in against the, the man they call the mountain is swing and miss at strike three, which is, like, it's, it's up there amongst the highest in the history of Major League Baseball. It's going to be a fun week. It was a fun weekend. People showed out for this team against an Angels team that uh, decided to buy 
and then felt a little silly after losing two out of three to the team that they were directly chasing. Shohei Otani hit his home run, and yada, 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 and the Blue Jays took two out of three. Again, should have been three out of three if, for whatever reason, this team stopped having brain worms. Man. And, it, again, it's not – there are some guys on this team where they make mental mistakes, and you're like, well, kind of goes – Part and parcel with the whole thing. Matt Chapman's not one of those players. Usually head in the game. Six inning yesterday. Tie baseball game. Leadoff double. George Springer smokes one to the gap in left center field. You're scoring on that if it touches ground anywhere. There's no reason to be between second and third. None out. You have to try and tag and advance to third base. For some reason, it was caught in between, can't advance, and the Blue Jays unable to score in the inning. I know it's, it, it happens all over the place around Major League Baseball, and it is magnified when you play in close games and you're not reaching quite your potential this season. But, yeah, this Blue Jays team has not clicked on all cylinders and could use some smart baseball every now and again. Maybe that's coming. Maybe the, the runners in scoring position hits are coming, and maybe the smart baseball is coming. Now would be a good time to start. Four games against the Orioles. Chris Bassett getting the start in game one. When we come back, it's bad news for the Canadian women in Australia. Dusted, destroyed by the host Australians 4-0 this morning. Um, Sophie Schmidt, it was her final match. Maybe Christine Sinclair's final match. But uh, the Canadian women headed home. First time that's ever happened to a defending Olympic champion. We'll talk to Andy Petrillo of One Soccer and CBC Sports next. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time, Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Blue Jays, Orioles, game one of four down at Rogers Center tonight. We'll talk to John Morosi after four o'clock as we are just over 24 hours away from the Major League Baseball trade deadline. Uh, the Canadian Women's Women's World Cup came to a close this morning in inauspicious fashion. Four nil drubbing by the Australians. They scored early. They obviously scored often. Uh, and Canada didn't have its first attempted goal until the 70th minute. Let's talk to Andy Petrillo of One Soccer and CBC Sports. Andy, thanks for doing this. Uh, how are you doing? A little sleepy, but uh, other than that, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, hopefully you had a nap between uh, game time <laughs> and now. Uh, it's disappointing. It's the first time ever that a, a reigning Olympic champion has gone out in the group stage of the World Cup. This is this is a team that yeah we all expected so much out of. Um, what's your personal level of disappointment? Yeah, I'm kind of I'm on the fence because you know like a lot of people the expectations were there because this is also the first time they haven't advanced out of the group since 2011. So it's a long time, like it's over 10 years that we've seen them at least go beyond the group at the World Cup, and of course we've seen them pick up medals. At the Olympics. So on that type of big stage, they're competitive. So I can see how the expectation is there to at least make a go of it and make a run of it. But on the other side, because I've been following this team so closely, I know there have been holes there. And in particular, their offense. And we know that they've had difficult uh, difficulty scoring against teams who are ranked top 10, 
top 20. They haven't really been able to translate that, or I should say score against teams who are outside of that. They can do so well, just not in that group. And how were they going to do that here at the World Cup when it was really something that they struggled with? Uh, you know, the record in 2023 between the She Believes Cup and uh, the two friendlies that they played, one against France, the other one was against England behind closed doors. Three goals for, seven goals against, a record of one win, one draw, and three losses. So when you look at that, you're like, oh boy, like this is a team that's not exactly going in top of form. But what I think also surprises me, Ben, in that final game, more than anything, the identity of this team has always been defense. They've always been so strong. And just from the get-go, uh, Kaylin Sheridan just didn't ever really look settled. I feel like the back line fed off of that. So that type of nervousness, whatever it was, just seemed to permeate throughout the team. And then up, up front, again, struggled to find the back of the net. But, yeah, this final game, the fact that the defense for me let them down, I mean, because a loss can happen. We, this is sport. This is why we watch. We don't yeah. know the end. Not so much the loss that's shocking. It's the fact that it's 4-0. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, it's disappointing. But at the same time, I feel like we saw this coming a little bit. Well, it's a great point. And, and go back to the, the what was a 2020 Olympics that was played in 2021 in Tokyo. And, and the knockout stage for Canada. Uh, win in penalties. No, no scores. Uh, scoring during the, the regulation 90 and extra time against Brazil, but they win in penalties. They win 1-0 against the United States in the semis, and then in the gold medal game, they, they score one, but they, again, win in penalties. That was that was the type of game that this team played, and I know you had Steph LeBay on, on your show earlier today. I mean, it, it, it there's no one-person teams, but she seemed like outsized important. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really tough again. And you, you, you talk about the Olympics and that's so true. Like they had four goals in that group stage game to your point, when you get into the knockout phase, they weren't really scoring goals either. Even that one nil win over the U S that was a penalty kick that was awarded to Canada. So their, their difficulty in scoring from open play has also been a really big problem. And, you know, Steph Labbe speaking to her, she she mentioned just how disjointed as well the midfield also looked and just really weren't able to get on that ball, um, hold on to possession, be creative, you know, feed the forwards. And, and that's what it was. There was just something that was really disjointed about this team. And I can't put my finger on it because, you know, again, against Nigeria, the glass half full is, you know, they don't concede. They have a clean sheet, but you knew they could do better. Ireland that first half was abysmal. Then they they come back in the second half. So you're like, okay, is this going to be what it's going to be? And then it wasn't. It just you just never knew what you were getting with this team. And it was it's very nerve wracking for fans, that's for sure. And, and you know, Steph was obviously visibly, you know, uh, upset about it as well because this is a team where she looked and she just went, you know, I played with a lot of these players. Mm. Uh, a lot of these are still, you know, the majority of this team you know, they were in Tokyo for those Olympics, and it was just unexplainable, like how they came out the way they did. And I think, you know, Bev Priestman in her post game kept talking about how she didn't feel like this team believed in themselves enough. So, I mean, if, if you don't got it between the ears, then, you know, you're going to have major problems come game time. Well, and th- there's so much hap- happening off the pitch for, th- for this team as well, Andy. And I, I know nobody wants to make excuses. And Christine Sinclair and her, her post-match availability made clear of, of that fact. But, yeah. It's hard not to, to, to go to that, go to the, the drama that is involved between the, the women and Canada soccer and the negotiations and hammering out an interim CBA like in the middle of this tournament. 
it, it, it's hard not to think that that impacted the play a little bit. Yeah, I'm a, I'm of two minds of this. Um, because I'm a big believer that, you know, if we're going to talk about equality, then it, it has to come in all forms, including how we also talk about them as athletes. And I know when the men crashed out of the World Cup, they too were embroiled in the fight with the Federation. I mean, the men boycotted a game for crying out loud. Um, and their World Cup money, uh, how it was being dispersed, hadn't been decided. But when they crashed out of the World Cup, we never talked about their fight with the Federation being the reason. We talked about Alfonso Davies missing a penalty kick and John Herdman's tactics and, you know, whether or not Atiba Hutchinson was used too much, a 40-year-old, right? Like, we kept it to the game. So there's a part of me that's like, show that same respect to the women. They weren't good enough. Christine St. Clair missed a penalty kick. We could, this could be a different tournament if they had won that game against Nigeria. Can, can we argue that Bev Priestman got her tactics right? I mean, her forwards weren't getting the job done. Did she need to change her formation? Like, these are the types of things, Ben, that I'd like to talk about because we did it with the men. So equality also matters in the narrative in which we also speak about athletes. Um, but am I naive? No. Obviously, stuff was going on behind the scenes. And what's different for the women is that the men decided to come out with a statement on the eve of their game against Ireland. I thought that was um, poor taste. I really thought that was poor taste by the men to have that statement come out the day before a big crucial match for the women. In their statement, they said that they had already talked to the women. And I'm like, yeah, but what are the women going to do? They're in the middle of a World Cup. What do you want them to say to you? Of course, they're going to say, go ahead, do what you want. We're busy. The other part of me and... I wonder why the women did this. Because I know I spoke to Christine Sinclair. I, I spoke to Jesse Fleming. I spoke to these players before they left. And they all acknowledged how during the She Believes Cup, everything that was happening off the pitch was a distraction. And they only had so much energy to go around. So they made it a point to shut it down when they got to the World Cup. None of that stuff with the Federation was going to be talked about. So why, I guess my question, and this is something more for the players, I do wonder why there was some sort of negotiation still going on while they were playing and a deal was announced while they were playing, right? Like, why couldn't yeah. it just hold off? So that I have questions around that then a little bit because while I hate saying the off-field stuff was a distraction because to me that also just like, in some ways, are they, are they mentally weak? Could they not focus? Are they not strong enough? I don't like that narrative one bit. Um, but at the same time, I don't think the men were cool in doing what they did. And I don't know why the women continued, or at least had their representative, you know, continue to negotiate while they're there at the World Cup. I have, I can see those being distractions, and I just have questions around that. Yeah, your point, sure. yeah and your point is well made about, uh, yeah, the, the, them not being, um, we, we were allowed to criticize the actual uh, on-field play here, right? Like yeah. that, that we can have two separate conversations. Um, yeah, because that's, that's, that's fair. And that's, and a lot of these women are actually, you know, professionals and, and they understand that their responsibility is, is to win matches, and they didn't do it well enough. And as a result, they disappointed at the World Cup. But the, all of Canada soccer is such a mess right now, Andy. And it's, it's I just, it feels like it's, you know, I've talked to you a couple of times, and, and I think the last time I talked to you, it was bad. And now, like, I'm talking to you now, and it's worse. Like, it's just like, where, when do we reach rock bottom, and, and we get a rebound effect, and, and, and everybody can can put this this garbage that we've had to deal with and 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 feel like or or try to pretend like we're we're accountants and and understand the 
you know, financial implications of, of you know, what each uh, the men's and the women's team are, are trying to do here and how much money there is to go around. And yada, yada. Like, when can we stop having those conversations? I know it's a, an impossible question to answer, but I'm sick of having the. I just want to talk about what's happening on the pitch. I, I'm just I'm forced not to. Yeah, yeah this is, and it's so disappointing because it does feel like whenever the national teams play, which, by the way, I mean, it's not that often, but whenever they play, instead of the hype around the game, it's like some sort of statement gets dropped and some sort of something new about a labor dispute is being talked about. And I do feel the frustration from a lot of fans. And it's not that the fans don't want to see the players treated right. It's not that the fans don't want to see an equal pay deal be signed. The fans are just starting to get frustrated with as much. They they want to show love to the team, but they just feel like all the joy is being sucked out of the games because of this labor dispute. And while it was brought into the public realm, because quite honestly, the players, and I don't think that they were wrong, they did feel like they needed the court of public opinion to help them put pressure on their federation. Mm -hmm. And it did. And we have seen changes. There's been major turnover at Canada soccer. Like, so anyone who says, you know, burn it down or get rid of the old guard, they don't know what they're talking about yeah. because in many ways it has been burnt down and there's been tons of turnover, tons. True. Um, yes, there have been some people who have been there, you know, for, for quite a few years. And yes, Charmaine Crooks, the president, being one of them. But by the way, she was the VP who got elevated. She's just going to be there for the end of Nick Bontis's term after he stepped down. So we'll probably see change there again. Uh, but there's been, you know, a ton of turnover and fans are just really starting to get really frustrated but you know I, I don't know if this makes it makes it feel makes you feel any better or just makes it worse but the usa when they were fighting mostly the women for the equal pay that was a six-year battle yep and like these, these are the types of things that just don't get done uh quickly but and i've said this before it's worth noting canada soccer has said that they agree to equal pay the women want equal pay the men are the ones who seem to be holding back on something. I'm not going to say it's equal pay because I don't think that's fair um, because the men haven't come out and said that, but the men have obviously most recently come out with a statement and said the latest offer is inadequate. Okay, what about it is inadequate? And I think that's where also the public is starting to get frustrated because they know that the players leaned on them to help them make changes and put pressure on the Federation. And now a lot of the fans feel like they're in the dark because no one's actually telling them what this deal is, why it's not good enough, and why people aren't signing it. And I think we know that Canada soccer has, they haven't really functioned properly for many years. We know this, but Canada soccer has had a spending problem for many years. That's been their biggest problem um, because they can bring money into the Federation. They've just had a real spending problem. So now this new deal, yes, it's less than what was offered a year ago because Jason DeVos, again, a new person who has come on in as the interim general secretary, looked at the finances and said, what the heck was that original offer? There is no way we can afford that. So I know the, the amount is less. Um, but that's the reality that the players also find themselves in. Also, if you're going to get equal pay, it may mean a cut elsewhere. Your appearance fees, your bonuses, like those might be less. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's very, very complicated. But uh, these are the types of things, sadly, that don't get resolved quickly. No, and I think that's the most interesting part from my perspective um, is that, yeah, we're all trained because, boy, Nick Bontis was an easy target. Uh, we're all yeah. trained. 
we're all trained to look at that guy and look at Canada soccer as the bad guys. And there's an element of that too. But I, I think maybe it was Gareth Wheeler coming on with me last week that kind of, you know, uh, alerted me to what you just raised there. And I know you're a little close to it. You don't want to speculate too much, but I will. That it's the men that are holding this up, right? That the real conflict, the real story here exists between the men's and the women's program, which I, I guess also existed in the United States. Like, do we have to just go down the, the whole play sheet of, of how those six years played out and, and envision that happening almost to the to the letter in this country? I mean, it's it's the most recent example. And I mean, Cole's notes, you know, for people who, who don't know it, but yes, the American women obviously wanted equal pay and rightfully so. They, they were multiple times Olympic champions, multiple times world champions. Um, but I think, you know, the, the reason why they also lost their case because uh, they brought it to court. Um, this is another thing that, you know, a lot of people I think are learning is that the federations of the of U.S. and Canada they supplemented the salaries of their national team players in the NWSL and the National Women's Soccer League. So the Supreme Court threw out the American women's case because they said it's not exactly apples to apples, the comparison, right? What you earn playing for your country and the men because your country also supplements your professional salaries, right? So the reason why the deal got done in the United States was because the American men came to the table. They actually, you know, rubbed some brain cells together and went, this women's program has been far more successful than ours. Mm. Um, And yeah, they deserve it. They completely deserve it. And also their federation is loaded, right? Like they've been successful for a lot longer and they're just bigger than us. So they have way more money, but credit to the men who opened their eyes and went, yeah, this is not fair. So the men came to the table and help the women get the deal done. Uh, They did the right thing. And now this is the fight that we're in with Canada, as I think, you know, the Canadian women are saying, we've been very successful. We have two bronze medals. Now we have a gold medal. We've been perennial contenders at the World Cup. We deserve this equal footing. So what's holding it up, Ben? Like, that's the Seems obvious. Again, I'll speculate. It's the men. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there you go. I'm just telling you how it played out in the States. So we're trying to figure it out here, right? Yep, yep, yep. It it all makes sense. But yeah, um, it's it's an especially uh, a big bummer story this morning because of, well, we know Sophie Schmidt, that was her final match ever, right, is is retiring Mm -hmm. at 35. Christine Sinclair is, is 40, but she... Never wants it to be definitive about it, and I'm I'm totally on board with that. Um, it does though feel like a changing of the guard, right, Andy? Like w- was was today's match, you know, a signal that there's a, and I know it's it's not all thirty plus year olds. There's there's a good young core uh, of this uh, uh, on this national team, but yeah, what what, do, what can you say about the career one of Sophie Schmidt and maybe the future of Christine Sinclair? Yeah, I, you hear everything great about Sophie Schmidt. You hear that this is the ultimate team player who grew into a leader, was always very welcoming. You know, she, she scored some big goals for Canada. She scored during that CONCACAF championship as well uh, last year in order to qualify for the World Cup. So, it's, yeah, it's going to be sad uh, when she goes. I mean, she's pretty much been a stalwart in that in that midfield. And, I mean, it's been a bit of a bumpy road. I'm, I'm happy she got this World Cup because I think, um, you know, some people forget she didn't really make that Olympic roster. Uh, it, it got expanded because of COVID, and she ended up going. But she and, you know, Bev Priestman, I don't want to say they didn't hit it off personally, whatever their personal relationship was, but Bev just kind of yanked her out of that midfield. And, you know, where she saw herself as pretty much um, – you know, a steady person in that midfield. Suddenly she lost that position under Bev Priestman. But credit to Sophie as well for sticking it through and proving to Bev, I'm somebody you want. 
And, you know, she earned this right to be here at this World Cup. So that leadership and I think that glue, someone who really helps even newcomers belong, feel like they belong right away, you know, that'll be missed. As for Christine St. Clair, it's, you know, it's funny. She, I, don't, I don't know if she ever will make a grand announcement. You know that, right? like, Homer Simpson, the Homer Simpson gif where he just, like, you know, backs up into yes. the bushes? Yeah. Like, I feel like that's just how Christine St. Clair wants to go. Like, just leave me alone. Um, but there was a report that she was um, picking at the grass or picking up some grass, like, on the pitch as she was leaving, and somebody asked her about it, and she said, well, this is most likely my last World Cup. So she wanted to remember. So I don't know if she's got like a handful of grass in her pocket, yeah. you know, that she's going to take home. But I think, you know, she's, she's acknowledging it. She's not doing like what Megan Rapino uh, or Marta, two other great legends, have said, which is this is my last World Cup. You know, Christine hasn't said that. From a selfish perspective, I wish she did because I want to give her her flowers. I want the big pomp and circumstance. I want to talk about it on a show with graphics and <laughs> boards and stats. But that's me, you know, like that's why I'm upset she hasn't announced it because I want this glorious show. But I can, that's just not her. That's just not her, right? Uh, so, but I, I think it's fair to say this is her last World Cup. Yeah, definitely her last World Cup. But there's, there's Olympic qualification coming up in September, right, at home. And I, yeah. I guess if you play in Olympic qualification, don't you have to play in the Olympics if you get there? Like, isn't, if like we're just doing the natural progression and evolution of things, isn't it September and then... In, in Paris. So here's my guess, and it's 100% a guess, zero intel. Uh-huh. My guess is that she will continue playing until, fingers crossed, the launch of Project 8. And I think she'll play the first year. I think the intent is to play the first year in that domestic league help it, you know, get off the ground, bring a little bit more coverage to it, and then perhaps she'll, you know, walk gently into the night. That's just my guess. That is strictly a guess, but uh, I can see it being a reality because I can also see her being a draw, right? So many young girls look up to her. Can you imagine this domestic league starts and you have a chance to see Christine St. Clair play? I can see that being a big deal. So I do wonder if, you know, she goes until 2025. So then to your point, Yes, that's Olympic qualifiers in September, and then you got Paris 2024 in July. So could she do that? Of course she could. Yeah, and then you're right. When when she does decide to hang it up, it'll be like, yeah, an email sent around to everybody. <laughs> she, she's done, and that's all we're going to get. Uh, Andy, I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much. All right, thanks for having me. Andy Petrillo of One Soccer and CBC Sports. That can't be it for Christine Sinclair. Stinks that that was the end for Sophie Schmidt. Stinks that it was so definitive, right? Like, it's it's one thing to, oh, man, close. Or, like, they had drawn and, and that wasn't enough to get them through. But, ah, tough luck. Almost that, like there was no debate. <laughs> As the Australians scored in the first 10 minutes and then scored and scored and scored and scored again. And Canada didn't have much going on at all. In fact, their first attempt at goal not until the second half and, and deep into it. All right, we have uh, breaking news out of Major League Baseball right now. So the, the Blue Jays, they set the pace in the American League East, uh, acquiring Cardinals closer, Jordan Hicks. Tampa Bay Rays saw that and they said, well, we're not just going to sit idly by like the Orioles are probably going to do. Uh, they went and out and acquired uh, right-handed starter Aaron Savali from the Cleveland Guardians, despite the fact that the Guardians are right there in what is a horrible division, but a division title race in the American League Central. They gave up 
first baseman Kyle Manzardo, who is one of the top 100 prospects in all of Major League Baseball going into this season. According to Baseball America, he was the 60th ranked prospect in all of baseball. He's all the way up in in AAA. He's 22 years old. So somebody that the Guardians can likely, like, I don't know, call up immediately and play in the major leagues. He has yet to reach the major league level. But that's, uh, that's a pretty aggressive move by the Tampa Bay Rays to go out and get themselves another rotation starter as they attempt to break out of this swoon, which is basically seen what was, I guess, an unsustainable offensive start kind of normalized right now. It's the offense that's been the issue for the Rays. Uh, They've had starting pitching injuries, but boy, they just cannot score runs recently. Um, We'll talk about that and a whole lot more with our next guest, John Morosi of MLB Network. Again, Blue Jays acquire a guy that throws 103. The Rays go out and acquire a starter. The Yankees are, I don't know, doing something maybe red Sox sitting on the sidelines a little bit selling kike hernandez and there's the orioles at the top of the division got lots to sell haven't sold any of it yet we'll see if uh, that's to come in the next 24 or so hours john morosi next the fan drive time continues i'm ben annis sportsnet 590 the fan Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis, Blue Jays, Orioles. Battle of the Birds, Battle of a Couple of Titans in the American League East. First of four games tonight down at Rogers Center. A couple of notes before that game. Lineups out. No George Springer on the lineup. Kevin Biggio starting in right field. And Jordan Hicks is in the building and available for tonight's game, which you would have expected. Uh, trade consummated yesterday. And uh, I bet you everything was working in fast forward to get him here and available and ready for this game. The Blue Jays don't have their closer. And this is an important series. Um, this is an important season for a lot of teams in the American League East. I mentioned it before we went to break. Uh, the Rays go out and acquire a starter of their own, Aaron Savale, as uh, the latest deal approaching tomorrow's 6 o'clock MLB trade deadline. Let's talk to our very favorite insider. It's John Morosi of MLB Network. How's it going, John? Ben, I am doing great. Uh, this is, as you know by now, my favorite time of year so this is uh, pretty cool to be joining you on the show today yeah man and and you're one of those twitter accounts that i, I got the notification set up so that I, I know when when you tweet and and there should be a lot of tweeting between now and and six o'clock tomorrow night Let, let's maybe just let's uh let's start with the most recent thing i mentioned the aaron savali trade uh, as the rays aren't going to sit idly by i mean recently their their swoon has been related to lack of scoring but what do you make of them giving up a, a pretty legit prospect for a starter with team control. Well, I think it was a really good baseball trade on both sides. And this is where I love talking about a true baseball trade. And this is not one that is defined by buyers and sellers. I guess nominally the Rays are more of the buyer in this particular transaction. But the Guardians get a guy in Manzardo who I think has a chance to be a cornerstone player for them for a long time. And when you're able to do that, 
if he's a, a major league level bat, it's more of a need for need trade than it is a buy sell trade. And this is the kind of thing that we've talked about with with the Mariners being involved in things and 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 their ability to to access different talent pools because their pitching is so good. There's a lot of really intriguing options there that I think uh, we're about now to hear about in the next 24 hours where it's not the standard buy-sell. It's more of a need-for-need, need. and this was certainly a, a need-for-need kind of a deal. And the Rays, with all of their injuries they've dealt with, uh, I think it's a really good fit to get someone in Savali who's shown that he can be one of the more reliable arms in the American League. You know, I, I have a, a big question mark. Uh, in regards to the Baltimore Orioles, and and I I'm wondering if if part of my my uncertainty surrounding that team involves their not inactivity at last year's deadline. They they sold off pieces instead of going for it in in what was a surprise season. But they they could have attempted to make the playoffs, and you know part of that trade turned into Yanir Cano, so that worked out. Um, but this is a team that's in first place now, right? Like they they're not on the outside of the playoff picture and and looking to push in. They're in first place, and they have lots of good young talent, understandably. Uh, a lot of it's at the major league level, but as you rightly point out in, in a tweet that you you sent out right before you, you hit the airwaves with us, they can make a Justin Verlander trade happen if they want to. Now, that's the question, John. Do they want to? And Mike Elias is like kind of indicating that, well, what did he say? We're not going to sell the entire farm system just because we're in first place. I mean, nobody's asking you to to do that, but... You'd be doing your team a disservice if you didn't make some concerted effort to improve your team, I think. Well, right, and that's where Baltimore, to your point, I, I'm totally good with teams that are on the borderline uh, of, of buy and sell when it's time to make that decision and they opt like the Orioles did last year to sell. That's good. That, that preserves your assets for, for another time and a brighter day. And guess what? That day has arrived. And the Orioles, to me, they have the prospects that probably have the best prospect base of any team in the American league. Uh, you could argue comparing theirs and the Dodgers for the overall best group. Uh, Jackson holiday, who I don't think is going anywhere in any trade uh, has got a chance to be a future all-star for a long time. So they, they've just got an embarrassment of riches and they've got so much talent. That they could probably access players that, that other teams can't. And not only Ben have done a pretty good job of developing talent, but they're they're actually doing a really good job of not having too much money on the books long term. I mean, they they have a very very flexible team, and so when you talk about a, a group like this and a, t- a team like this, they're able to potentially take that flyer on Verlander that a lot of other teams can't do, especially if the Mets are willing to kick in some of the money. And that's where you know Verlander at forty three million dollars, it's daunting. But if it's Verlander at $20 million, then it's a little bit different. And let's not forget, when you make a trade, it's a really important part of the CBA. You can make deals and cash in deals contingent on, on whether or not a player opts out. So that, that is an allowable part of a deal, cash transaction. So I would say to keep an eye on that possibility because the Orioles have done such a great job of managing their payroll and their, their prospects to where they can make any deal they want. Yeah, the Verlander situation is super interesting because, yeah, he's he's pitched well when he's healthy this season. We talked to Ben Verlander actually on Friday, and he talked about, hey, he, his last start looking like pretty close to the guy that won the American League Cy Young Award last year. He, he's he got the, the $43 million coming to him next year. He's got a vesting option in 2025 for 35 
million bucks, but he has a full no trade as well. And and I guess the Max Scherzer deal maybe indicates that that he'd be willing to move on, but he's got a young family. Like, are we sure that Justin Verlander is, is going to allow him to be, himself to be traded out of Queens? Well, that's that's a big question, and I think that a couple things to keep in mind. Actually, I'll mention a few things. Number one, to your point, he has the full no trade clause. He can do whatever he wants to do right now. He could basically come out and say, "I'm staying." Period. End of story. Notably, after the game last night, that is not what he said. In fact, he said quite the opposite <laughs> that that he will be open minded to things. So that's a. B. I from being around Justin since basically the, the day that he became a full time major leaguer with the Tigers back in '06. He he is not going to tolerate another rebuild, and I think that there are certain you know parts of his uh, you know the way he looks at his career. Let's say he's got you know another couple of few years left to pitch, depending on how how far into his forties he wants to go. He yes, you know moving your family is obviously one concern, but if he looks at it like hey for the next two or three years I'm still an active major league player and I want to make sure I'm doing it in a place and around people that are engaged with winning like that that could be a pretty interesting sales pitch, even if it is Baltimore. He did happen to grow up not far from Baltimore, so that is, mm-hmm. uh, quote-unquote, he doesn't live there any longer, but it's as close to a hometown team as he had when he was growing up. I think that's that's a, uh, an important point to make there, too. Um, but I, I just think that Verlander is at a stage where he, does, he wants to be in competitive situations. The Mets have been a disaster this year, to put it mildly. And I, I think that he looks at their handwriting on the wall and sees, wow, like Max just got traded. They've already traded some other uh, assets during the course of this time, including their closer, David Robertson. What's going to be left next year? And so I, I do think that the JV, for his purposes, you know, he's a, a very smart guy, very aware of, uh, of, of different circumstances in terms of where, where it makes sense to go when you're, when you're making $43 bucks a year. Uh, the the tax status of your state tends to matter significantly. Not that I would know that, but I, you know, sources tell me that, that that's yeah. a thing. So, uh, so obviously Texas is a no state income tax state that that could be part of the equation. So I, I think Justin's going to be very, very savvy about this and, and look at it with very, very clear eyes. And I, something tells me that if he did decide there was a better um, competitive situation somewhere that, he'd probably have the resources to find uh, you know, a good school district and, and to put down some roots there. Yeah, that, I, I think that's, that's fair to say. I don't expect the Blue Jays to be active in the Justin Verlander market, although they were a, a team that was pretty aggressive, according to that's reports, in, in, in trying to, to, to land him as a free agent. Um, but it, it does feel like the Blue Jays' rotation is pretty set, although, you know, top end of the rotation, are we sure that Alec Manoa is a, is a pretty good two to Kevin Gossman's one? I'm not sure. But anyways, let's put that aside. What, what, what do you think the Blue Jays are targeting before 6 o'clock tomorrow? Yeah, I think one more bat, I would say, and, and finding a little bit more balance. They're still trying to find what their, what their best nine is. I think that's, that's a, a, probably a fair statement for all of us that have watched this team play this season. Uh, there's a lot to work with. I'm a believer that they they are going to get uh, and have success as much as as it, with anybody else. It's going to come down to Vlad and Bo and Chapman and, and those guys. I mean, that's kind of their still their DNA. They might make some moves around that. And the good news for them is it's a supporting cast that they're looking at. This is not a they don't need to remake their entire lineup. They just have to add in some right-handed power here or there or some contact. I, I still believe and like the fit of Tim Anderson um, with the Jays just to add one more contact-oriented bat. 
I think that was something they struggled with a little bit in the playoffs last year and against some really tough competition. Um, there are some other right-handed bats out there, whether it's Lane Thomas with the Nationals, Canna and, and Tommy Pham. Uh, obviously with the Mets, I, I'd mention them. The, the Blue Jays now have some guys that are available. Would they? Would, would the Jays have a reunion with Teoscar or potentially look at Ty France as a DH type, depending on what you wanted, uh, or at least half of a DH, depending on how you want to utilize belts? Uh, I tend to think they would want an outfitter more than France, but that's that's my my early read on that situation. So there's there's enough out there. There's not a ton of righty bats, but I think the guys that are available, uh, I would say Lane Thomas is is one of the top of the market guys. And Mike Rizzo said yesterday they've had as many as eight teams calling about Lane Thomas, which is a pretty strong number. And I would I would very highly suspect that the Jays are, are one of those eight teams. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned Teoscar Hernandez. That's a it's a Mariners team that's only a half game back of the Angels, who are of of course pushing their chips in. Uh, different circumstances, obviously there, but yeah, a pending free agent, a guy that uh, people in the city obviously know know very well. It'd be so weird to to figure out what the value is on on Teoscar Hernandez after they got Eric Swanson and, and Adam Mako. Maybe it's just like send Mako back because the you know you still benefited from from Swanson. I, I don't know how you'd figure that out, but I mean the, the Mariners being sellers at this point, the the, the the run differential is pretty high. It's at 36. It's it's better than the Yankees. Um, but And four and a half games is not, you know, we're still got two months of the season still to play here, John. Um, are, are the Mariners going to try to do two things at once? Or, like, are they just pure sellers? I think that they put them in the same bucket as the Guardians. That, that's how I look at it. They that, That's exactly the kind of a buy-sell idea uh, where it's need for need. I mean, their, their lineup is interesting. They... They have, and I watched that team pretty carefully, they have underwhelmed, I think, just based on how watching them and how they're, how they're performing, they have, I think, frustrated their fans even more than the Jays' offensive inconsistencies have, have frustrated Jays' fans at times this season because the, the whole has not been the sum of the parts, uh, I think, for, for the Seattle Mariners. And that's why the report from Bob Nightingale about Ty France being available, in addition to... Teoscar Hernandez and and Paul Seawald, their closer, which was, I think those were two a bit more obvious uh, names, whereas I think France indicates that there's a larger sense of needing to reimagine who they are offensively. Mm. That's what I see with them. And and so I, I, I look at that group and say that they've got to find some ways to to address their, their offensive needs and, and maybe look at improving and getting just a different kind of a power bat at first base. If they're going to trade Ty France, They'd better be getting back someone who is a like a younger and maybe a left-handed version of Ty France. Mm. Uh, and and honestly, Manzardo, who who went in the Savali trade, it, it would have been a good example of that kind of a bat. Uh, and and that's where I, I think the, the the Mariners probably, if if let's put it this way, if if they wanted Manzardo, they could have put Gilbert into a deal and gotten him. But I don't think they wanted to put Gilbert in the deal. So that's. That's where I think they're at. They are they are open on everything. Jerry Depoto loves to make moves. He will make a move any day of the week that ends in Y. <laughs> and and I think that when when he is he now I think correctly assesses this as you know they're not having a very good year by their standards of last year. They're still a good ball club. Let's let's improve our our chances to win a World Series at some point in the next two to three years, as opposed to 2023. You did a very good job of comparing their approach. To the Angels' approach. For the Angels, 
like 2023 is like the end of the known <laughs> interval of time. Okay. Because that's because of Shohei. that's, that's like all they've got right now. I think that the Mariners say, wait a minute. Yeah. 2023 is important, but uh, to, uh, to borrow a quote from my, my hall of fame colleague, John Lowe, this is not the last year we will play major league baseball. So like everybody can feel this in a little different way. I think, I think Seattle really subscribes to that theory. The angels, it's very much a, we live for today. We've got show a, Hey, let's, Let's let's play let's let's play ball today as long as we've got number seventeen. I think that's that's the thinking on the Angels side right now. Yeah, and I think making the playoffs last year for the Mariners and ending that drought is is hugely important in that regard. That yeah, your fan base maybe gives you a little bit of a a grace period there. I don't know how much grace period there's going to be in New York or Boston if those teams one don't buy and and two don't end up making the playoffs. But, yeah, you could see it happening. Oh, Red Sox with a heartbreaking loss in San Francisco to lose that series to the Giants yesterday. The Yankees never in it after Luis Severino gets pounded in in the, in the, the first inning. He's had a couple of those starts recently. I, I think, to me, the Yankees are, are more interesting because Aaron Judge is back, and, and it, it, it feels like they were going nowhere without him. He doesn't play in yesterday's game. didn't seem to matter anyways, again, because Severino was so bad. But, I mean, this is a team that, that really did leverage a lot in, in free agency on this season and so far coming up short. Are we sure that the, the Yankees are, are buyers? Uh, that's a great question. They're, I, I think they're still looking at ways to upgrade their team. I mean, they, they are only three and a half games out of a wild card spot, so they're not totally lost. Uh, but it's interesting that for, for as flawed as the Red Sox have been, for most of the season, they're still a game ahead of the Yankees. Yep. And and the Jays are still, despite their flaws, three and a half games ahead of the Yankees. So it just it just tells you how the Yankees. They're just first of all, we know this. They're not they're not the same team without Aaron Judge. And and the the, the real riddle here, Ben, is what kind of team are they with Aaron Judge if he's not a hundred percent Aaron Judge right now? And that's what they have to figure out. Um, the, the to me. The judge injury obviously has has been the major impediment to them competing this year on the level that they would expect. But more than anything, it has revealed their complete lack of depth. And and whereas the Yankees probably would have said in spring training, yeah, we're really excited about this young group of guys and 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 Anthony Volpe and Oswald Peraza and Oswaldo Cabrera. You look around at what they've done. Cabrera's bad in 205. Volpe's bad in 209. Mm. They're they're just not the, the the productive guys. You know, Peraza's bad in 173. I mean, like it's just they haven't answered the bell. This next generation has not shown up. I, I don't see them moving or, or declaring that they're sellers in a grand way at the moment. Unless if they trade Glaber Torres, then I think that says okay, we're really in sell mode. The Yankees have done it before. They did it with Chapman years mm-hmm. ago and Andrew Miller, but. But I really feel like at that point they had better assets to move. They're just – I don't see a lot of guys here that make a ton of sense for them to trade because they're either all locked up long-term or they're underperforming, like LeMahieu, Rizzo. It's just – and, and then on the rotation, to your point, Severino's got a 7 ERA. Yikes. They're, I, I just – I cannot see them there's, – there's adding talent, which I'm sure they will try to do, and then there's go for it all, all in, like what the Angels are doing. And there's no chance the Yankees do that. They're just—they're not good enough to do that. They're—they're—they're they're, they're a very—they're an average team, as far as I'm concerned. And they've got a lot of issues to work through before they ever consider to be 
uh, favorites in the in the American League once again. No, it's true. Like you can look at the standings, and you can look at you know being only three and a half games out of a playoff spot. But it's it, it's not always the 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 best indication. Blue Jays were fifty and fifty one in twenty fifteen when they went out and got Troy Tulowitzki and, and David Price. And I look at a team like the Padres, fifty two and fifty four, five games out of a playoff spot, but winners of three straight. You want to talk about run differential? They're plus sixty three this season, John. And there was a moment there where I was like, oh, they're you know, going to recoup some of the assets they gave up to get Juan Soto. I, I don't know if they do that now. I mean, they, they they feel so pot committed. What do you think the Padres do? Yeah, Ben, I think that's a great point, and I think you're illustrating and, and framing that perfectly on the on the Padres. They they are so committed to this year. I think the way they played against the Rangers over the weekend put them back into the into the buyer category or at least hold. And and to your point, when you when your run differential looks that way. You can you can basically say to the world, listen, uh, the, the the return to the mean is coming. We're just going to sit here and enjoy the ride as we as we ascend back up to to where our our normal level of performance should be. And I, I do think bullpen is is a big part of that. But when you have when you are that far underwater of your run differential, you're basically struggling in, in one of two ways almost all the time. One is timely hitting, and two is your bullpen. And, and of those two things, the bullpen is probably the thing you can fix the easiest. And then the timely hitting aspect of things, I would say for them, if they could find a way to, to add a little offense to the bottom half of their lineup, you know, catching is so hard to, to acquire at this time of year. But, you know, Nola struggled so much this year. That's a part of their club that I think they should look at to maybe upgrade a little bit. And then, obviously, on the, on the infield, they're pretty well, pretty well situated with, with a lot of name-brand guys some of whom have performed this year and some of whom haven't. So I, I think for them it's bullpen and it's it's augmenting maybe the bottom half of the lineup, but uh, the, the notion of them trading Soto, I just don't see it. You know, maybe if they're overwhelmed by an offer for Snell uh, or Hayter, they would consider it, but I, I tend to think that if that was going to happen, it would have happened by now. Yeah, I, I'm with you. That, that team looks good enough that they could go on a run the last two months. Uh, should be fun, though. Exciting. Uh, more than 24 hours still to come before the deadline. John, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Ben. I, I appreciate the conversation. And, uh, and yeah, this is very much like one of those times of year where it's like stream of consciousness for me. And I uh, ho- hope, hope most of that, I hope like 95% of that at least made sense to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're up to 97 today, John. Congrats. Oh, very. Oh, I love it, man. There's, you know, a, a couple references where I probably lapsed into talking about uh, the Red Wings power play and where to bring it fits, but we'll, we'll we'll focus on that one next time, okay? Sounds good, buddy. See ya. All the best, Benny. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right. There's John Morosi, MLB Network, going into a fugue state, uh, talking about so many teams, so many players. He does so many hits. He's on so many television networks that, yeah, it's easy to forget where you are. But, no, he does a great job and and is one of those insiders that you should definitely click on the old uh, alert uh, button on X or whatever. So it's, it's we, I saw, like, on the broadcast on Sunday Night Baseball yesterday, they were taking your tweets, but they said, like, they had – they actually called it X, X slash Twitter. So, like, are we do we have to call it X? Because it is still Twitter.com, right? Anyways, still Twitter – for me, although, like, I guess legally, maybe it, it's X now. Um, so, you know, sometimes you don't think about something too deeply when you're doing a radio show. You don't have this this thing happen to you because you don't have a radio show. Here, I'll, I'll just tell you something that just happened to me over the last 20 minutes there. Is that I was not thinking about the Blue Jays and Justin Verlander in any serious way before the words were coming out of my mouth. 
And I guess I'm still not thinking about them in a serious way, but I can make it work in my mind. So one, like I said, Blue Jays and Justin Verlander have had dialogue. I, I, and I know you can get sucked into this thing where the Blue Jays are involved in every free agent conversation because they have the deep, deep pockets of being owned by Rogers. And time and time again, you've had your, your heart broken because the Blue Jays didn't get the free agent that you thought they were down the, the line with. I do believe it when it comes to Justin Verlander, despite the fact that it was an exorbitant price. It was a shorter term deal. Despite the fact there is a vesting option for even a year beyond next at $35 million. I think there is a comfort, a comfort there between Justin Verlander and the Toronto Blue Jays. Jays have a six-man rotation. That is a fact. Starting tomorrow, Hunjin Ryu will be activated. The Blue Jays will be forced into a seven-man bullpen because they have six major league starting pitchers, all of which have had moments, least of which this season has been Alec Manoa. To me, the number one selling feature on the Blue Jays as World Series champions, potential World Series champions, was good enough offense, and the offense is underperformed. A good enough bullpen, and they improved that with Jordan Hicks. But a top of the rotation that harbored two aces. And last year, Alec Manoa got the majority of Cy Young votes, but Kevin Gossman got Cy Young votes as well. Like, neither of those guys are you disappointed with starting a postseason game a season ago. This year, there's only one. Jose Barrios is back to what you thought he would be when you signed him to a seven-year extension. That's all well and good, and he can be great on any day of the week. But it's not not ace-level stuff, man. Kevin Gossman's still that ace-level starter. Alec Manoa, maybe one day he's going to get back to that. It, it's hard to imagine that happening this season. He's got to go through an offseason and then show up for spring training next year, I think, as a different dude. This year, I think the Blue Jays have one ace. That's good. Lots of teams don't even have one. Two would be nice. Justin Verlander is back to his ace self and didn't get deep into yesterday's ball game against the Washington Nationals, but strikeout numbers are up there. Didn't walk a batter. I mean, is there a, a scenario in, in which the Blue Jays figure out a trade for Justin Verlander and, and maybe it's, you know, one of their current starters headed out the door or maybe it's, hey, Alec Manoa, you know, you're still a big part of our plans, but your option to the minor leagues for the rest is, I don't, like I wouldn't totally discount it. Again, there's a relationship between the Blue Jays and Justin Verlander. And boy, Feel a lot better going into a playoff series, and especially if it's a wild card series where you can only lose once if you're going Kevin Gossman, Justin Verlander, instead of Kevin Gossman at this point. I mean, you say Kikuchi's got a pretty good claim to, to be the number two starter, and starter. I know Chris Bassett's been pretty good at times, but look at what Chris Bassett did in some important games for the Mets last season. I don't think you're all that comfortable with your game two starter if you're the Blue Jays going to the playoffs. You would be with Justin Verlander, close to the peak of his powers, which he appears to be. Anyways, some food for thought. All right, when we come back, what did the Blue Jays give up in trade for Jordan Hicks? We'll talk to Jim Callis, senior writer for MLB Pipeline, and we'll talk to Ben McDonald, Orioles analyst, former Orioles starters. The Blue Jays start biggest series of the season so far, four against the Orioles tonight at Rogers Center. It's the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. 
discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, the fan, Blue Jays and Orioles, first of four down at Rogers Center tonight. 707 first pitch. Chris Bassett against Kyle Gibson. And Jordan Hicks is available. He's in the building. He's got a uniform on. He's ready to go. It's Blue Jays give up Sam Reverse and Adam Kloffenstein. We're having uh, pretty good years in double A with the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. They give them uh, to the St. Louis Cardinals for the flamethrower. Let's talk to Jim Callis, senior writer for MLB Pipeline. This is a big time of year for you, Jim. Uh, a lot of names floating around in your head, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with the, <laughs> we go from the draft to the trade deadline to updating all of our top 30 lists. There is <laughs> there is a ton going on right now. That is that is accurate. Yeah, so let, let's talk about the two guys that the Blue Jays gave up who are, are known commodities for, for Blue Jays fans, uh, Sam Reverse and Adam Kloffenstein. What, do you think the Blue Jays will live to regret giving up those arms? Uh, I mean, they're both interesting. I like both those guys. I mean, we're not talking, you know, slam dunk, top 100 prospect, you know, reverse. You know, he might be a starter, but then again, I, I don't know that he's got a true plus pitch to where, you know, Sam reverse is going to be. Yeah, he kind of is on that, that bubble for me starter reliever you know maybe he's a number four guy as a ceiling it's not great control he's okay i like him and you know kloffenstein's got a good arm also um you know he's kind of same thing like you know i don't know that he's got a true plus pitch i mean maybe the slider um I, but i think both those guys are guys who have kind of average to solid stuff mm-hmm. you know and they're not you know, above average control command guys. So they're, they're good, but they're not, no, I, I don't think, I mean, ultimately, you know how you and I both know Ben, these trades will get judged. The, the trade will be judged in Toronto by whether, you know, the Blue Jays make the playoffs and, and you know, or, or don't make the playoffs and what hits his role is in that. But I, I don't think it was an exorbitant. I, I thought it was a very fair trade. I, I can understand what the Cardinals were doing, but I don't think, uh, they're going to, you know, I don't think the Blue Jays, you know, gave up two all-stars in this deal either. No. And, and it's for a guy who's a rental, albeit at the, at the top of the, yep. the the pile when it comes to rental relievers in, in an overall sense, Jim, I, you know, reading some stuff and back when Shohei Otani was on the table and people pontificating about the Blue Jays being involved in that and talking about how the Blue Jays um, farm system isn't uh, as, as revered as some of the others in major league baseball. And, and clearly the Orioles are, Maybe the, the the best of the bunch, uh, and it's Blue Jays and Orioles for for four starting tonight. How how do you evaluate what the Blue Jays have uh, to to potentially trade out of their coffers if in fact they want to continue to go big before six o'clock tomorrow? Yeah, I mean they're not as deep as they used to be, but I mean you know a few years ago they had one of the better farm systems in baseball, and we've seen a lot of those guys graduate to Toronto, so they've been in kind of more replenishing mode than you know, so they're not as deep. I mean. Look, I, I, you know, and again, I mean, it would depend on player. If they're, you know, Ricky Tiedemann, who had missed some time, looked really good, you know, his first outing back. You know, if they're willing to trade Ricky Tiedemann, you'd probably be in play for a lot of guys because I, I, you know, Ricky Tiedemann would be one of the better pitching prospects to get to, to change teams at the trade deadline. So, I mean, that they have guys they could trade. Or Elvis Martinez is, 
is kind of blocked and he's power over hit, but there's a ton of power there. I mean, he's still just 21 years old. He's got 19 home runs this year. He just went up to the triple a. I mean, they have guys who could, you know, they can try, you know, like Tucker Coleman and, 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 you know, isn't tearing it up. Like maybe they hope right out of the draft and, you know, Aston Barger isn't having the year he had last year, but there'd be a lot of interest in those guys. So I, I think they have ammunition if they want to go out and, and make the trade. Now, that said, you know, and, and I mean, Otani, you know, more rhetorically, because the Angels don't look like they're going to trade Otani, but if Otani was on the board, I don't think the Blue Jays could go toe-to-toe with, say, you know, like you mentioned, the Orioles or the Dodgers. You know, if we're talking a big-ticket guy who's going to be a package, I don't think they could put together a package to trump everybody. But you know, they, they certainly have ammunition if they want to go out and make some moves. So, Jim, I was looking at the, the last 10 years of, of Toronto Blue Jays' June drafts, and the, there's only two guys that have, one, made it to the major leagues and, and two, stuck with the Blue Jays, and that's Alec Manoa and that's Nate Pearson. Now, there are major leaguers in the bunch, like Jeff Hoffman was was part of a trade. Uh, TJ Zoic would, I guess, reach the major leagues with the, the Blue Jays for a little bit. Jordan Groshans, he was, he was traded. Um, there's been other Austin Martin, another guy that's been traded, but to, to have two homegrown guys out of the first round over a 10 year period. And of course there's guys that are drafted more recently that haven't had enough time to, to, to develop and, and the jury's still out on guys like, uh, Brandon Barrera. Uh, and of course the, the 17 year old shortstop they just drafted, but like to have two guys homegrown out of the, out of the first round over a 10 year period, is that about right? Or, or, or have the blue Jays underperformed in the, in the first round over the last decade or so? Well, I mean, it's hard. I mean, are you just talking pitchers? Are you counting position players? Or do they have no position players, I guess, first round? Yeah, nobody that's played. Like, they've taken guys like college uh, shortstops like Logan Warmoth, who turned yeah. into nothing. I mentioned Groshans. He was in Austin Martin. Those guys were yeah. position players, too. Yeah, but yeah like. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's probably below average. I mean, you have to say. I mean, it's funny because. Yeah, I was zeroing in on pitching, and like it just goes also to show you how difficult pitching is. Because if we were having this conversation a year ago, I mean, we might have been you know picking Alex Manoa to win the 2023 <laughs> Cy Young Award. Yeah, and a couple of years ago, Nate Pearson was as good as any pitching prospect in the game, and and quite simply, he may throw too hard to stay healthy for long periods of time. And, and you know, probably the bullpen is the place to keep him. It, but yeah, I mean, that, that that's not a great. I mean, Warmoth is is not a great pick. You know, Austin Martin, I mean, it's funny, too, because I think the consensus, you know, was, man, how did Austin Martin fall to five? Everybody yep. thought he was going to go number two, the Orioles, and he looks dreadful now. <laughs> um, so, it, yeah, I mean, they have not gotten as much out of the first round as, as, as you know, other teams have. You know, although, I mean, it's funny, you know, I mean, Bo Pichette wasn't a first-round pick. Nope. He was a pretty good second-round pick. Like, so, I mean... I, I think they've done okay draft-wise. But, yeah, their, their first-round picks right now over the last decade are, are not jumping off the board at you. Yeah, and it helps a lot to draft 1-1, one, one, uh, like the Orioles did with Jackson Holiday, who's who, I mean, he's just torn the cover off the ball in his limited minor league experience. They have so many guys that have already graduated to the major league level and are contributors. At last check, I think uh, MLB Pipeline had eight of the top 100 prospects as Baltimore Orioles. If the Orioles wanted to, could I mean, are, are they kingmakers of, of this MLB trade deadline if they decided to go all in? Yeah, I mean, I think them and the Dodgers. I mean, the Orioles, the Orioles might have a little bit more impressive big names that they could throw out at you, but the, I think the Dodgers have even more depth and, and more financial. Like again, I don't think the time is going to get traded, 
But like Dodgers theoretically could trade for Otani and sign him to an extension, you know, if he was willing to do that. But yeah, I think the Orioles could. Now the question is, do the Orioles want to spend? Like like they still won the lowest payrolls in baseball. They even after making steps forward last year didn't go out and really address the pitching that much. Um, you know, and I don't think they're going to trade. You know, they're not going to trade Jackson Holiday. But they they literally have more infielders and outfielders than they have room to play. So I mean. And, you know, it's crazy, too. I mean, Colton Cowser and Jordan Westberger in the big leagues look for playing time. And you got Heston Kerstad, Joey Ortiz, Connor <laughs> Norton, and Kobe Mayo in AAA. That's six guys who are basically, you know, either in the big leagues or knocking on the door who are talented, top 100 guys who, you know, they, you know, they have may not have, like, an obvious place to play because they're so loaded. But, yeah, I mean, if they want to go out and be aggressive, they could be aggressive and, and also not, you know, ruin the future of their franchise. Jim, before I let you go, like who deserves the most credit for that? It, it, it always ends up being the GM and Mike Elias, and 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 he's the guy that I mean, the buck does stop with him. But I mean, is is he the reason why they've they've been able to hit on all these players? Again, it helps to draft one one. Not all those guys are one one draft picks. No, and they took. I mean, they took Colton Kalser and Heston Kristad were guys. You know, they they took higher than people would have taken to save money to spend on other guys. You know, Joey Ortiz. You know, was a fourth round pick. Gunnar Henderson, who looks great, was a second round pick, and so on. I mean, yeah, I mean, Michael Elias is is the GM, so I mean, it starts with him. But you know, I think I, I think they've done. It, 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 <laughs> I'm trying to make this a more concise answer. He was in Houston when Houston was in a similar situation, so he kind of knew the playbook. Yep. He'd seen what Houston did. Not that it's that easy to do and say, "Hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to tank and then turn it around." Like it's not that easy, but. I think Mike's a really smart guy. I think he knows young talent. I think the scouting department, I think two guys who don't get credit there are the scouting director, Brad Stielwick, and the farm director, Matt Blood, because it's not just the 1-1 picks. And look, I mean, Austin Martin was picked fifth overall, and I'm not saying the Blue Jays ruined him, mm. but like, it's not just picking players, it's developing them. And I think the Orioles were not a very modern organization. I don't think they were very much into analytics or some of the more advanced ways to develop players. And I think Mike's overseen that, but I also think Brad Fielick and Matt Blood had to implement it. Um, you know, which again, it's easier. It's easy to say, "Oh, okay, we're going to turn this around." It's easier said than done. So I, I just think what you have there is you have an organization with a lot of talented people that has a lot of people doing good work, and they're finding talented players and making them better. So, um, yeah, I mean, Mike is in charge, and he hired those people, so Mike deserves the lion's share of the credit. But I think he'd tell you, too, that it, it's far more than just, you know, Mike coming in from Houston and saying, hey, we did this in Houston. I'll do it in Baltimore. It, it's a lot harder than that. Uh, it's worked so far, though. Uh, Orioles in yeah. first place in the American League East and, and potentially uh, going to uh, increase, their, increase their talent level before 6 o'clock uh, tomorrow as the Major League Baseball trade deadline fast approaches. Jim, I uh, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Take care, Ben. Yeah, you too. There's Jim Callis, senior writer for MLB Pipeline. Huge, huge series. Four gamer between the Blue Jays and Orioles starting tonight down at Rogers Center. The Blue Jays one and five against the top team in the American League East headed into this series. Let's talk to Ben McDonald, Orioles analyst, former Orioles starter who joins us online. Ben, thanks for doing this. This is a, an exciting time between these two teams. My pleasure. My, yeah, it is. Look, um, great place to play. Uh, we're glad to be here, you know. And look, two teams that are really playing well, especially in the month of July. I mean, you look at what the Jays have done. They're 14 and 9 in July. The Orioles are 16 and 9 in the month of July. Both teams seem to be playing really well right now, and that's what you want your club doing 
since we approached the month of August, and basically just too much left in the season. Yeah, this is an Orioles team that we could see was on the rise last year. They, they surprised people, decided not to go for it at the deadline, and I guess that, that ended up being a, a wise decision because they got a guy in Yanir Cano who's been a huge part of that, that bullpen in trade last year. This is a different deal, though, Ben. They're, they're in first place as we approach the, the trade deadline. Are you expecting a little more action uh, out of Mike Elias before 6 o'clock tomorrow? If it ever makes sense to go out and get a two-month rental, you know, and give up two or three of your best prospects, you know, I, I never felt like Mike was going to do that. Now, if you can get a starting pitcher that has some club control for next year and you get him for two months this year and some club control next year, I always thought that was a possibility. But for me, it almost feels like they're going to go out and add a nice bullpen piece and try to shorten the game in some way to be able to tell your starters, hey, you know, give me five good innings and we can shorten the bullpen and some, you know, get to our bullpen to get to Perez and and, of course, Bautista and Cano and Baker. And Fujinami's uh, been silent since coming over to the Orioles as well. That was the first and only move the Orioles have made to this point. No, that was a good one. We saw him throw hard when he faced the, the Blue Jays and uh, and the A's faced the Blue Jays. And, you know, he wasn't exactly getting everybody out, but you could saw you could see the arm talent was there, and, and the Orioles have, have uh, unearthed it, clearly. Um, you mentioned Bautista, who's... A great, great closer, and he leads the American League in saves, and he was great last year. But this year, it's it's something else. The, the strikeout percentage is over 50%, Ben. Like, is this – are we watching one of the great relief seasons in the history of the sport? Potentially, yeah. I mean, look, it's hard to say. And I know relievers don't win the Cy Young anymore. But, but I got to think that if he continues to go at the pace he's going at, continues to strike out guys like he's doing right now and dominating the back end of ball games. I think he's going to get some consideration. I don't think he can win it, but he's got to be in the conversation, right? I mean, that's how good he's been. It's hard to believe when you talk about Venus Bautista, you talk about a young man that two years ago was sitting in A-ball. And that's where he was because he couldn't throw strikes, and he never could climb the ladder. And then the Orioles brought him into spring training last year just to see him and look at him because you knew he had a big arm. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, he starts to find the strike zone a little bit more. It became interesting. And Brandon Hyde, he makes the club. And Brandon Hyde didn't get him any leverage spots right away. Just kind of broke him in uh, to the bullpen role at the big league level. And, look, it was really good last year. It's been even better this year, you know. And uh, he just doesn't know what he doesn't know. He takes the ball when they ask him to. And he goes out. He's 6'8". He's 280 pounds. He goes 102 miles an hour with with a wipeout splitter and an occasional slider in there. And, look, he's been really, really good. And, as you mentioned, the command continues to get better. You know, he's throwing a few more fastballs this year than what he threw last year. Like, it's, it's getting more and more fastball heavy with that wipeout splitter. But, yeah, he, he's a, certainly a weapon, and the Orioles are lucky to have him at the back end of the bullpen, for sure. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it was a pretty good base to start with, being six foot eight and throwing 102. But, yeah, getting him in the zone, uh, obviously not every – organization is capable of doing that they did it as well with Yanir Cano uh acquiring him in trade from the twins as I mentioned at the deadline last year and in brief uh stints with the Orioles after the deadline he only threw four and a third innings and he walked five guys and he gave up nine earned runs and all of a sudden they've turned him into one of the best relievers in baseball what what is the secret sauce there because they're obviously able to take guys who throw the ball hard but don't know where it's going and get them back into the zone how are they doing that 
you know, and look, I'll take you a step further than that. CNL Perez last year. Now, he's not had the year this year that he had last year. Last year, he was one of the best relievers in baseball. And that was always a knock on him. He couldn't throw enough strikes. He pitched to a, you know, 1.06 ERA last year and nearly 70 appearances. And so they did it with Perez, too. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, when I saw Cano throw last year, I'll be honest with you, I was one of the ones that had my hands up going, why is this guy on our 40-man roster after right. I saw him throw? Because he couldn't throw strikes with the Twins last year. And a little bit of time with the Orioles last year, like you liked the stuff. He had that, that power sinker and a really nice slider and a wipeout changeup, but he just couldn't get it to zone. And I'm sitting there going, man, why, why are we hanging on to this guy? Well, that's why I'm sitting up in the booth and, and not the GM of the Orioles because Cano came out this year. And they said they make a little bit of mechanical adjustment with him, and all of a sudden he took off. And you know how it is. Look, when you start to have success, that breeds confidence. And now the confidence is that he just goes out there every time. And look, I'll give you this. He hasn't been quite as good as what he was the first six weeks. He came into an Oriole uniform like he was unhittable then. He started giving him a few hits here and there, but still, for a setup guy in the seventh or the eighth inning, he's still better than most. And it's that big power sinker that moves a lot up to 97. You know, with a good changeup and the occasional slider as well. So when the Orioles have the lead, man, and they can shorten games, and they can get to those two guys, that's one of the big reasons why. And look, it's really been the strength of this team. But it was last year the Orioles overachieved the 183 games in bullpen with the top 10 in the league. It's there again this year. And that's been a big reason why. Now, recently, our starting pitchers have really answered the bell. They're having their very best month in the month of July as far as ERA, as far as energy pitch, as far as getting you know, some length in the ball games. And that's been a big reason why the Orioles are where they are. This young, exciting team, even with some injuries they've had. So Cedric Mullins is a big loss for the Orioles, and nobody's talking a lot about that. But when they get Cedric back, they feel like he'll be back in the next couple of weeks. It's going to add a different dimension to this team. A guy that can get on it for a little power, but he can, you know, he can change the game with a base pass, too. He creates a little bit of havoc when he gets on. And, of course, he is an elite defender out in center field. So I think the Orioles are pretty happy where they're at right now. I think the fan base would love, you know, at least one more move to go out there, whether it's going to be a starter or most probably a bullpen team to go ahead and boost that bullpen a little bit more. Uh, A lot of these guys have a lot of reps under their belts, you know, and you wonder as you hit this back stretch the last two months of the season, can this bullpen continue to perform like they have for the first four months of the season? Yeah, and they performed well against the Blue Jays so far to the tune of five wins in six games head-to-head between these two teams. Uh, four starting tonight at Rogers Center, Blue Jays and Orioles. Ben, enjoy the game tonight. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Anytime. Take care. All right, there's Ben McDonald, Orioles analyst, former Orioles starter. It sounds like it's a party at Rogers Center. I have a live feed, and there are... No human beings in the seats yet, obviously. Uh, the gates open, what, 5.30 for a 7.07 first pitch? Um, but, yeah, it's going to be a packed house, I would imagine. Although it's uh, Monday and not a weekend, but they had sold-out crowds Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Blue Jays and Angels. And, boy, Friday was a tough ticket, uh, especially exp- expensive on the secondary market uh, with Otani originally scheduled to start that game. I imagine there's going to be more big crowds ahead for this Blue Jays team. All right, it's uh, Jordan Hicks. Potentially his debut for the Blue Jays tonight after being acquired in trade from the St. Louis Cardinals. Mike uh, Mike Gentili back from vacation, by the way. After two weeks off, he did what I did, did the smart thing, took two weeks off. And uh, what do we got? We got some, some Jordan Hicks sound? Yes, we do, Ben. Uh, the newest Jay is not only in town, not only in uniform, he's like ready to pitch tonight. So uh, he met the media Ooh. today, so we have a little sample of what he had to say. 
This is the highest ERA team, I'm pretty sure, against me. So uh, it's good to be here. Uh, I'll say that. Um, just, yeah, this great group of young talent, like I said. Um, really good team. So <laughs> really good individual players. And uh, inside the clubhouse, it just seems like a really connected team. So I'm glad to be here. Got the call to go into the manager's office yesterday. I was in the bullpen. And they basically told me that I've been traded to Toronto. Kind of had a smile on my face and uh, just excited to be here. I'm just happy to be with a, a competitive team this, to finish off the season, uh, go get a chance to win a ring and uh, help the bullpen out and help this team. You know, great group of young guys. I'm um, just, just really excited to be here and uh, be competitive. All right, there's Jordan Hicks, newest Blue Jay. And, and what better way to go into your free agent season than to one, be pitching as well as he has outside of April, which is the key component. Apparently made some, uh, if not mechanical adjustments, like say he was you know, changing his, his position on the pitching rubber and improved his you know, pitching, his ability to get, get outs outside of April. Uh, so that's step one. Step two is to pitch on a good team. Like if he continued what he was doing with the Cardinals in obscurity, is this team, you know, lost more and more games and finished well and well below 500 would his market be as great as it might be if he's getting big outs for this blue jays team in a pennant race against some of the glamour clubs in major league baseball in the american league east and beyond that getting big outs in the postseason which blue jays obviously acquired him for him and jordan romano at the back of the bullpen throwing gas could be a pretty dynamic duo not quite felix bautista who's striking out more than half of the batters that he faces but yeah not far off. And how many times have you looked at this team in the postseason, like go back to game two against the Mariners last year and thought, boy, it'd be nice to get a little bit more swing and miss out of the back end of this bullpen. Well, before the addition of, of Jordan Hicks, the Blue Jays bullpen was doing that. Strikeout rate was up. And part of that is Eric Swanson, a guy who doesn't throw upper 90s, but has struck a bunch of people out. And Trevor Richards has had a, a resurgent season as well. But yeah, a guy that throws 103 can always help. On the other side... The Orioles are going to do something, and Ben McDonald's right to, to to point out the reliever they got from the A's who throws hard and has done well since being acquired by the Orioles. But you never know how long these windows of contention are going to last. And I know it feels like now the Orioles are the, the next evolution of the Houston Astros, and after losing for a half decade, they're going to be atop the division and winning division titles and winning World Series, and everybody's going to be chasing them forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And maybe that's about to happen, but maybe not. Do we really think the Red Sox and Yankees are going to sit idly by if they, in fact, miss the playoffs, not continue to add, not continue to fight for the top of the division? The Rays never spend a prolonged period of time outside of contention. Maybe this is the best shot you got to win a World Series. I don't know if Michael Elias believes that, but if I were the O's, I'd be pushing more chips to the middle of the table than think they are going to before six o'clock tomorrow all right blair and barker getting you set for game one blue jays and orioles next we'll be back with the trade deadline edition of the fan drive time tomorrow note the time one to four i'll be back i'm ben ennis this has been the fan drive time sportsnet 590 the fan